Hello, this is Philip Schoenfeld, Editor-in-Chief of Evidence-Based GI, discussing a recent 26-week randomized control trial assessing a newly approved treatment for irritable bowel syndrome with constipation. Specifically, this summary is entitled Tenapinor for Treatment of IBS-C, Effective Over 26 Weeks. And this summary reviews the publication by Che and colleagues entitled Efficacy of Tenapinor in Treating Patients with Irritable Bowel Syndrome with Constipation, a 26-week placebo-controlled phase three trial, which was published in late 2021 in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Now, this is an important topic for several reasons. First, tenapinor was just approved by the FDA and begun to be available for gastroenterologists to prescribe in the last month. It's important to have multiple options when treating patients with irritable bowel syndrome with constipation because no single agent is effective in all patients. This specific treatment, tenapinor, which will be marketed as Ibsrella, is a first-in-class treatment that is a small molecule inhibitor of the sodium hydrogen exchanger located on the surface of intestinal mucosal cells. So this means that the drug is minimally absorbed. You can't actually measure it in the bloodstream. And that usually correlates with an improved safety profile and minimal, if any, drug-drug interactions. Again, having more treatments is important since even the first-in-class treatment for IBS-C per the ACG guidelines, which is linaclotide, is effective in only about 45 to 50% of patients with IBS with constipation. Let's start by discussing how the authors investigated whether or not tenapinor was effective for the treatment of irritable bowel syndrome with constipation. This was a multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled RCT carried out for 26 weeks in the United States. All patients met Rome 3 criteria for IBS-C and were treated with either 50 milligrams twice a day of tenapinor or an identical placebo. Now, study design for IBS drugs is quite complicated because the FDA requires quite complicated endpoints to define success. Specifically, the FDA defines a successful responder as a patient who has a reduction of abdominal pain of at least 30% from baseline and an increase in what are called complete spontaneous bowel movements of at least one in the same week. And if a patient is a responder for that 30% reduction in abdominal pain, an increase of one complete spontaneous valve movement per week for at least six out of 12 weeks, then the patient is considered a responder. Now in this trial, that was the primary endpoint 
the proportion of six out of 12 week responders, although the study also reported on patients who responded for nine out of 12 weeks, for 13 out of 26 weeks, as well as reporting data specifically for abdominal pain reduction and mean increase in complete spontaneous bowel movements over the entire 26 weeks. Now, the results demonstrated that tenapinor was significantly better than placebo, with 36% of patients being responders in the tenapinor group versus 24% in the placebo group. And that resulted in an adjusted relative risk of 1.55. In other words, patients treated with tenapinor were 55% more likely to be responders compared to patients treated with placebo. More importantly to me were the results from the nine out of 12 week responders. That is patients who have significant reduction in abdominal pain and significant improvement in complete spontaneous bowel movements for at least nine out of 12 weeks. For that outcome, patients treated with tenapinor were three and a half times more likely to be responders. Notably, the mean improvement in complete spontaneous bowel movement over 26 weeks rose to approximately three complete spontaneous bowel movements per week from a baseline of zero complete spontaneous bowel movements per week. And this improvement, again, was maintained consistently over 26 weeks. The mean reduction in abdominal pain was approximately... 45% from baseline, which was significantly better compared to placebo across the entire 26 weeks. As I mentioned earlier, this unique small molecule does not get absorbed in any significant amounts, and there were no drug-drug interactions. And the only side effect or adverse event that was more common in tenapinor-treated patients was diarrhea, which is common in trials of IBS-C patients. Diarrhea occurred in 16% of patients treated with tenapinor, which is quite powerful as an agent to increase bowel movements, versus only 3.7% in the placebo group. And ultimately, 6.5% of tenapinor-treated patients discontinued study medication due to diarrhea. Generally, there are very few limitations to this study. In terms of its trial design, it is an excellently designed study of over 590 IBSC patients. It meets all FDA criteria to achieve FDA approval for an agent. And a second RCT that was previously published provides very similar results, which thus allowed the FDA to approve tenapinor, which again will be marketed as Ibsrella, for the treatment of IBS-C. So how am I going to use this in my own practice? Well, as discussed in previous podcasts, I adhere to the American College of Gastroenterology Clinical Guideline on IBS, which 
provides a strong recommendation based on high quality evidence that guanylate cyclase C agonists, such as linaclotide and placanotide, are superior to placebo for the treatment of IBS-C. I rarely prescribe a osmotic laxative, such as Miralax, as a first-line agent because randomized controlled trials of IBSC patients have not demonstrated improved abdominal pain with Miralax, and the ACG guidelines suggest against using Miralax and IBSC for that reason. And most of the patients that I've seen have already tried and failed Miralax by the time they arrive for an appointment. Now, I'll most likely use tenapinor in patients who fail linaclotide or placanotide. Those are guanylate cyclase C agonists, and this has a unique mechanism of action. And again, I realize that approximately 50% of patients will not have significant improvement with linaclotide or placanotide. Tenapinor may be unique because by inhibiting the sodium hydrogen pump or exchanger, it will have an impact or create an osmotic effect by having sodium remain in the lumen of the colon and suck water in. But animal studies have also demonstrated that it decreases visceral abdominal pain or visceral hypersensitivity and have also demonstrated that it minimizes intestinal permeability. In other words, tenapinor may have an effect on tight junctions between intestinal mucosal cells. This could be important since leaky gut or abnormalities in tight junctions between the cells that line the mucosa of the intestine may be associated with the development of IBS-C symptoms. There are no head-to-head trials of tenapinor versus linaclotide, nor versus any other treatments for IBS-C, so we can't make comparative statements. Again, in my practice, I expect to use tenapinor in patients who initially fail linaclotide, and I am especially optimistic when I look at the data to show that it is beneficial consistently over 26 weeks. And I'd also note that its improvement in complete spontaneous bowel movements with a mean increase from essentially zero to more than three is particularly notable. Thanks for listening, and we'll be looking forward to you tuning in to future podcasts. Mm-hmm.